Everyone loves this passage. It strikes a chord deep within us. In fact, I suspect that when you think of the book of Acts, this is one of the passages that comes right to mind as you think about it. As you think about life in the early church, how do you structure a church in our day? This is one of the key passages that comes into our thought processes as we go through something like this. In fact, uh, I told Tommy he couldn't preach on it. <laughs> I, I said, listen, I'm, I'm doing the Acts series. I, I've got to have the end of Acts chapter 2. You can have Acts chapter 3, uh, but I've got to get the end of Acts chapter 2. It's an, uh, an Isaiah 11 type of passage for us. And Isaiah 11, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, that great eschatological picture of peace and harmony that exists in the world. It's a Psalm 133 type of passage, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And we read it and we, we pine, we think about those things. And I don't really think you can help but read this passage and say to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be great to be a part of that kind of community in our day, or for that matter, wouldn't it have been great to have been there during that time and to have enjoyed this sweet kind of fellowship, this great connection between people, this true sharing of lives that went on in the early church. And to be sure, this is a pivotal passage there are themes and practices that are repeated throughout the New Testament and are therefore to be continued. But I need, if you will forgive me, to, to burst the idealistic bubble or at least to let the air out of the tires a little bit with the passage today. This passage is part of the biblical witness designed to authenticate the reality and the efficacy of Pentecost and to testify to the authenticity of this new community that exists. Pentecost is a non-repeated event in the life of the people of God. And while there are elements in this passage for our imitation, there is much within this passage that is in fact not to be imitated, at least not exactly as it is done here for us today. And we've got to realize that. Just to take a few examples. They are about the business of visiting the temple at set hours. There is no temple and there is no daily schedule by which we are, as God's people living now, to go to the temple. There were signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles. There are no more apostles, and this is not the age of signs and wonders that are to be done by those apostles. When you read this passage, you see that extensive time was committed by these people to actually being together, which sounds great to us, except for the fact that you and I know that tomorrow most of you are going to go to work. 
or you're going to go to school, or you're going to be busy at life with your family. It looks like all that these people did was be together for this particular time. This is good, and it's a great example for us, but there are other things which we are about in our lives as well. And finally, there are no problems that are recorded in this section. Now, Luke is going to be happy to show us problems in the early church. In fact, he's going to show us problems with exactly the type of things that we see in this passage, exactly the activities here. Later, when we get to Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6, we will see that there are difficulties. However, at this particular section, there are no problems that are listed. We're problem-free as we go into this. To suggest for a moment that our lives, or for that matter, that the life of the early church should be or was like the section I just read every day would be to equate marriage with an unending honeymoon. Now, sometimes in our marriages, especially, well, I guess when you're going through good times, but perhaps when you're going through difficulties in your marriage, it's great to look back at a wedding ceremony it's great to look back at your honeymoon and to remember the things. Remember the things that we did at first. The vows that we took, the time that we spent together, the way that on our honeymoon we went out to eat together all the time. We listened to one another. We spoke with one another. We shared each other's food. We shared everything. We held hands. And to remember those things is a good and a helpful exercise to us to look back, to rejoice, and to say, okay, maybe some of those I can apply to my life now. You see, what happens with this passage is a lot of people come to this passage and they look at it and they think, ah, this is the authentic church. This right here, this passage, this description is the true church, to which I want to say, yes, amen. It, it is authentic, but it is the authentic early church on its honeymoon. The church is no less authentic. In, in fact, maybe it's more authentic as it struggles with the faith, with understanding what the will of the Lord is, with praxis, with relationships, with holiness, as it will throughout the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. That may be less pleasant, but it is not, therefore, inauthentic. Now, I'm sorry for that extended kind of downer intro to, to a really great passage that we have set before us today. I, I, I'm sorry to do it, and on the other hand, pastorally, I'm not sorry at all. Because unhealthy, unchecked idealism is a deadly expectation for believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be frustrated, disappointed, hurt, judgmental, and critical 
If you try to live your life as an ecclesiastical idealist, do not think that I am talking about someone else. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about Ian's. I'm talking about the struggles that all of us have because we long for a community like this. We see that, gee, they were like this at the very beginning, and gee, we'll be like that at the very end, and why can't it be like this right now for us in this life? You have got to let the air out of that tire because if you don't, it'll blow. It'll blow when trouble comes, when bumps in the road come. You've got to get the pressure down. The pressure that you put on yourself and the pressure that you put on other people because of your unrealistic expectations of what life in the church is like on this side. We got to do it. That said, that warning there, this is a great passage. This is a really great passage, and these were an incredibly devoted group of people, and we do, in fact, have much that we can learn for them. They were devoted. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to these things that we'll get into in just a moment. Verse 46, you can't see this in your ESV. It says, and day by day they were attending the temple. In the original, that brings back the word devotion. So it says, and day after day they continued to devote themselves. They continued, therefore, to go to the temple and the other things that are referred to in this passage. Devotion is at the heart of this passage. What is the character, then, of this devotion? Well, devotion refers to something that is habitual, something that is regular, and I, uh, I thought of this one this week, something that is tenaciously repeated to occupy oneself diligently with something, to pay persistent attention, to hold something fast, to continually be in. Eh, All those things are the idea of devotion. And clearly, when you read the passage, when I read the passage for us today, we can see that this is not a, a compulsory devotion. It's not a forced devotion. It's not reluctant It's not begrudging. No one made them do this. There was no nudging. Come on, you got to go to church. You got to get ready. We got to go over to the temple. Come on, get things together. They were glad when someone said to them, let us go to the house of the Lord. They were glad to do it. And it's also not a false devotion. The false devotion, i.e. doing things out of mere repetition and not because you want to with a heart that is far off, that's frequently condemned, of course, in the Old Covenant, and it was frequently condemned in the ministry of Jesus as well. People wanted to look good. They wanted to appear spiritually upright and appropriate within their community, and so you do the things that the community does even if you might not want to do them. This is no false devotion. Instead, it is a devotion characterized by the very things that we read together. It's characterized by gladness, by generosity, by awe, by sincerity. They are a group who is hopefully devoted. 
Which leads us to ask this question of this group of 3,000 plus now, how is such devotion now characteristic of so many people? It's certainly more than we saw in Jesus' lifetime. I mean, if we think back to the Gospel of Luke, and, and, or for that many, any of the Gospels, and you think about the way that the crowds are portrayed in the Gospels, I mean, I think the word that we could use to describe crowds as they are portrayed in the Gospels is fickle. But now you've got 3,000 plus who are described as being devoted, and you want to ask what accounts for that? Well, one thing that is often pointed out is that Jesus said to the disciples, you will do greater things than I have done. And in one sense, here you see it. The preaching of Jesus did not appear to produce 3,000 devoted, converted souls, and the preaching of Peter appears to. Greater works than I have done will you do. But the key, of course, has been made plain to us in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and just because we went to Acts chapter 3, don't lose this, it is clear, presented to us, that what we've got here in the underlying cause for this kind of response to Peter's preaching is, in fact, that this is the coming of the new covenant. What we are witnessing here is the effect of the Holy Spirit. This was the old promise that in the new covenant, the new spirit would bring a new heart. And this new heart now has a renewed capacity for love, for devotion, for obedience that did not exist prior to it. It is a, uh, and I know I've used this before sometime at Christmas, I'm sure, it is a Grinch-like transformation. The Holy Spirit affected a heart transformation so that the heart has grown in its capacity to be devoted. This, then, is the great miracle of the new covenant. I know it is tempting for all of us to look at stories like we find in Acts chapter 3 and in other places in Acts and think, no, real miracles are when we see the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. But the new covenant would, would say over and over again to us, no, those are merely witnesses to the greater miracle, which is the transformation of a heart so that it loves God and loves the people of God. That is the great miracle that is set before us. Now, perhaps it's worth addressing one misconception that we sometimes have. All of us struggle sometimes with knowing, okay, I know I'm supposed to be led by the Spirit. When am I supposed to be led by the Spirit, and when am I supposed to be doing something, and how do I tell the difference between those two things? And the, the assumption that can underlie that is this idea that when the Spirit is leading us, that there's a passivity that goes on in us. Kind of like someone else is driving the car, I'm just a passenger, I don't really need to do anything. Or conversely, when I'm active, that's when I'm in control of the car. 
when I'm making the decisions about where we are going. But what I want to point to in this passage is that what the Holy Spirit births in the life of this early community is devotion. And devotion to a set of practices. Clearly, devotion to specific things and to doing something is what we do. They didn't say when they, when they found out about the coming of the Spirit, the reaction wasn't, okay, well, I don't really need the apostles' teaching anymore because I've got the Spirit. They didn't say, well, you know, I don't, I don't need to go to the temple anymore because my heart is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't need to go to pray with other people because I can just pray on my own. I've got the Holy Spirit. Instead, what the Spirit gave them was, in fact, a spirit of devotion to the very practices in which they would enjoy and express and grow in their spirituality. And so we ask from that, to what were they devoted? What is the object of this devotion? And the answer is clear and it's unsurprising to us. It is classic, it is foundational, it is paradigmatic, providing, albeit a brief, but a description for the church in every age, in every country, whether we live in China or whether we live in the U.S., about the things with which we should be occupied. And it is found for us in verse 42. The remaining verses simply explain how some of this looked, 43 through 47. But the list is provided for us in verse 42. There are four objects of devotion, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were devoted, in other words, to the communion of the saints. Now, they were devoted to the Lord, of course, but the emphasis that Luke is providing to us here is that devotion that they had to the Lord expressed itself in this devotion to the communion of the saints. It is an organic devotion that they had. It is natural, it is living, it is vital, and yet even within this organic devotion that they have, there is the beginning of organization as well. Remember, we're at very early stages in the life of this community. There is very little in the way of structured organization. Acts is going to develop it. For now, we enjoy just a couple of foretastes of that organization while focusing mostly on the organic nature. They devoted themselves then, first place, to the teaching of the apostles. These men whom Christ had appointed to this very task. As is pointed out, Derek Thomas and others, Jesus had said to them, you will be sanctified by the truth, and the spirit of truth will come and will lead you into truth, and the spirit of truth is pleased to do that work through the teaching of the apostles whom Jesus had appointed. This early community is a community that is devoted to truth, to hearing the truth, to understanding the truth, to learning the truth, to growing 
in it. And it's the truth. If you wonder, okay, well, what was that? What kind of things did they teach about? You don't have to go very far. It's actually sitting right in front of you. It's the Old Testament, as we saw Peter teaching from the Old Testament, and it is all the things that are written for us in the New Testament as well. That is the apostolic teaching. And it is, of course, summarized for us in the great creeds of the church. So when the Nicene Creed says, when we say with the Nicene Creed, that we believe in the apostolic church, what we are saying is that we believe in this same teaching. The teaching of the apostles to which they devoted themselves is the same thing that we believe. The Reformation was the pursuit of truth and practice according to apostolic tradition. So much has been added, the question became, how do we get back to something pure, to something more biblical, to something more apostolic, to the substance of that which was taught and how it was practiced in the life of the early church? which is why Calvin, in his preface to the Institutes, can argue to the king, listen, we're not trying to present something new here. This isn't a new teaching that we're giving. You can't accuse us of newness because all that we're about is teaching something old, teaching something that is original. They were devoted to the fellowship which is to say, of course, that they were devoted to each other, to shared faith, friendships, to shared property and possessions. Now, just in case you're ready for a big discussion of that, you'll be disappointed, or you won't be disappointed in two weeks. Uh, that becomes a focus at the end of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and I'll pick up that particular issue in two weeks and allow us to focus on it then. But the Spirit gave birth not just to renewed individuals, the Spirit gave birth to a renewed community. And the devotion in this new community was to one another, and it was with one another. So verse 44 says it as plainly as it can, and all who believed were together. Verse 46, day by day they attended the temple together. Essential to the expression of our faith is being together, is life together. I don't have all the answers for what that means for us, practically speaking, but I will point out the challenge of that for us. Here, we're here together. This is good. This is the pinnacle of this togetherness. And yet we live, if you stretched us end to end, driving point from the furthest in Glenside to the furthest out, I don't know, Paoli-ish, what do you got? You got 35, 40 minutes between those two points. How do we imitate this? How do we practice a life together becomes a pivotal question for us. Third, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. There's a lot of discussion about this idea of the breaking of bread. Is this an early reference to the Lord's Supper or not? And some argue that it is. In looking at it, I tend to go with the theologians who see this more instead as a simple term that refers to that which began a Jewish meal, the breaking of bread and the giving of thanks. And so they were 
referencing here the fact that they spent a lot of time eating together. It has been observed that the Spirit of God gave birth to potluck suppers. We are an eating community. We are devoted to eating together. Healthy Christians eat with other Christians. I just, just let it sink in a little bit. Healthy Christians eat with other Christians. You remember uh, in the Gospel of Luke, I trust, how central hospitality was in the ministry of Christ and in the way that he sent out his apostles. If you received the apostles into your home, the, the ones who had been sent out, it was indicative of your reception of both the person and the message. You, you couldn't have one without the other. You reject one, you reject the other. Hospitality showed where the heart was, where the church is. One writer comments and, and says it this way, thus we may show hospitality not only as the physical support that kept the message going, which is to say, you know, we want to keep this message going and therefore we got to eat, so somebody get food ready, get the K-rations out, and we'll, we'll eat. That's a very instrumental view of eating. Okay, so hospitality is not only that, but also as the medium in which the message took hold and was preserved. In other words, the practice of eating together, the practice of hospitality, had not only instrumental value in that it filled up our bellies and allowed us to continue doing whatever it was that we were doing, but it in and of itself is intrinsically good. It is intrinsically part of who we are as the people of God. I was, uh, I was reading an article this week uh, in Ref21, the online uh, blog site. I know, I was reading a blog. Uh, it, it hardly ever happens, but it did. It was a little Pentecost in my life when I read a blog. Uh, but. But uh, the writer of this article was uh, referencing Genesis chapter 18 and Calvin's views on Genesis 18. Quick reminder, Genesis 18 is the passage where Abraham entertains the strangers, right? So the strangers come and he's getting, having Sarah get everything ready. And what can we do to get everything ready for these strangers? Calvin writes, this is proof of his charity. Moreover, Hospitality holds the chief place among these services. And here's another sentence. And therefore, the right of hospitality has been held most sacred among all people, and no disgrace was ever more detestable than to be called inhospitable. Calvin laments that in his day, life has become so difficult and strangers so suspicious that he sees, in fact, a proliferation of inns. And he sees that as a bad thing. Now, we live in an even different age, so this doesn't ring the same way except as a good, as a good poke to us, as a good, wow, think about that. 
Here's what he says. Therefore, the great number of inns are evidence of our depravity. Improve it to have arisen from our own fault that the principal duty of humanity has become obsolete among us. Principal duty of humanity to show hospitality. This is what the early church did. And of course, fourthly and finally, they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, the way that this is written, particularly as the plural is used, not they devoted themselves to prayer, but to the prayers, has to it a certain kind of formality. It certainly references set prayers, psalms, no doubt, uh, and perhaps the Lord's Prayer as well, as the Lord had given them an example of a prayer that, in which they could be praying. And it references as well the fact that part of their praying together was we will go to the temple at this hour of prayer and join with God's people because this is what God's people do at this particular time. Let's go to the temple and pray. Um, we're going to be able to come back to prayer, so I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on where I'd like to go with that. We'll come back to the hours of prayer and, and things like that at another time. But it's clear that not only were these formal prayers at the temple, but there were also prayers that were going on in the homes as they were eating together, as they were giving thanks and giving praise to God. To say it simply for them to be in this community was to be a praying community. That's what God had made up. He had made a praying community. The results of this spirit-inspired devotion are, of course, beautiful. You read it, and you can't help but love it. There's love, there's joy, there's generosity, there's favor, favor that could be shown towards them because of the kind of people that they were that wouldn't last, the favor shown towards them, favor that they could show to others as well. There was praise to God, and there was extraordinary growth. Now, without idealizing it, we can certainly step back and enjoy it. We can certainly step back and say, praise God. And I suspect that each one of us in this room has tasted of this. We've had experiences of this in our lives, the ongoing work of the Spirit of God as He creates and recreates this community in our midst. So we walk away from a passage like this. What does God want from us? You read this passage, we hear this passage preached on, a passage that we know well, and we're forced to ask ourselves the question, okay, God, what are you speaking through this to us? And I, and I think one of the things that we look at, and I, I don't want to claim this as exclusive, but I think one of the things that God asks us when we look through this, when we listen to it, is where's your devotion? To what are you devoted? And you know the, the, the ways that that can be measured through time, through the activities, through our calendars. To what are we devoted? Or let me just say it, can I just say it in improper English? What are we devoted to? That's the way we speak. There are lots of good things. And yet, what we have in this passage for all ages and all places are the priorities. If you're going to be engaged in this community, in the communion of the saints, 
This passage sets up the priorities for our Christian life. Many good things, many authentic things, but the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers are the main things that we are to do together in our common life. So let us stir up one another to these things, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God hates that, but he loves it when his people are glad to go to the house of the Lord. He's glad when they get together with joy and gladness of hearts. Let's grow, then, in being hopefully devoted to each other.